The concept of Flight Bridge Ed was sparked when a growing need and a dream united into an idea. That idea grew into a passion, and from passion came a global community of providers and students joining in the revolution of pre-hospital, critical care, and emergency medicine education. Now, from around the world, we are calling our community together. We proudly announce the Flight Bridge Ed Air and Surface Transport Symposium in Wilmington, North Carolina on June 11th and 12th, 2024, with opening keynote, Scott Weingart. That's right, Mr. Mcrit himself. World-class speakers, vendors, and of course, the Flight Bridge Ed team will be there. Go to our website now to register for Fast 24. Join the revolution. The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence-based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense, or good judgment. The views and opinions are those of Eric Bauer and Flight Bridge Ed in their entirety. This is the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, critical care and emergency medicine education for nurses and paramedics. Here's your host, Eric Bauer. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is Eric back with you. This morning, I wanted to talk about a um, nightmare series case. We're going to specifically look at rapid sequence innovation. Um, I wanted to do this because I think rapid sequence innovation is one of those procedures that we constantly need to train on. We constantly need to look at as far as the new evidence, kind of what is happening in the industry, um, new concepts related to passive oxygenation. We're going to discuss uh, new concepts as far as your induction agent and different medications that we can use that we may not have had in the past. And, um, our paralytics, our choice of paralytics and kind of the concepts related to the evidence based on um, which paralytic you're going to use for your initial induction. Again, you know, these are just my views. These are my views based on my clinical practice, uh, years of RSI patients and the, the literature. Um, but as always, you know, you need to follow your protocols, your local protocols, what you, your medical director um, has laid out for you. Obviously, you know, Flatbridge Ed can be a platform where you can take the literature on our podcast, the literature on the blog pages, the research and studies page, and show that to your medical director and maybe um, cause change in your organization. I think that's a great way to do it. And I've gotten, um, or I should say, I've received many, many emails of providers doing that and taking their um, concerns regarding a protocol and maybe showing that there's a different way um, that it can be done based on another agency or another area of the world um, that are having success uh, doing it a little bit differently. And there's there's been a lot of change happening. And, you know, that's the whole point of why we started Flybridget was to kind of e- e- cause an evolution in medicine and really spread the message. You know, there's lots and lots of great studies and research happening, um, but it takes years for those um, studies to reach these rural areas, these rural communities. So um, I think that's very, very cool. Um, like I said, we're going to start off with a nightmare series case, and then we're going to jump into the whole airway aspect. We'll talk about RSI, and we'll talk about the different decision-making paradigms that you can go down. You know, we did a podcast on RSI the very, very beginning of Flatbridge Ed, so it's been almost three years. I think uh, another month will be at our three-year mark, so thank you, everybody. It's It's been an amazing uh, road so far. 
but as I said, RSI changes. RSI um, is something we should always kind of touch on because, again, I think this is the one thing I see. Either this can make a big difference in your patients or if you don't make the correct decisions and you start going down the wrong road, um, this can cause a big, big issue. Uh, not only can you kill your patients, but, you know, this can be uh, something where I've seen crews lose their jobs over, you know, having sentinel events. And it usually all comes back to poor decision making um, and being what I say reactive. I always teach to be proactive regarding anything that we do. Don't be reactive. Be a resuscitationist. Um, so be thinking five steps ahead. And I think RSI is that perfect uh, procedure where you can intervene on a patient way before you absolutely have to um, and control the situation rather than allow the patient to decompensate and then be way behind the eight ball. So like I said, we'll start with a nightmare series case presentation. You have a 26-year-old female patient that was involved in a motor vehicle accident. Um, she was a unrestrained passenger of a small compact car that was hit um, on her passenger side. So a T-bone accident by a large van. Um, that van was traveling at about 40 miles an hour. Um, there was significant intrusion when you land on scene and um, the patient had been extricated out of the car and was, was actually in the ambulance at the time of your arrival. Um, you walk past the car, you notice that there's um, at least two or three feet of intrusion. You notice that the, the van is basically sitting inside the ca passenger compartment. Um, all the glass is broken out. You can see the front windshield is starred. Um, and there's significant blood um, that you note all over the door. So as you uh, attempt to make patient contact, um, you're, you're stopped by a local firefighter paramedic that's outside controlling kind of the scene, and he says, you know, this is a, a real severe case. We don't know what's going on with this with this lady. Um, she's swelling up. She's, she's very, very swollen all over her body. So as you and your partner uh, enter the ambulance, you note that you have a 26-year-old female, appears to be about 350 pounds, um, although she's only about five foot three. She's conscious. Um, she's attempting to speak. She's very striderous, and you note that she has massive amount of edema throughout her whole body. Um, her head, her face, her neck, her chest, her abdomen is... Uh, maybe four or five times what it should be. So at that point, let's stop. Let's kind of look at airway assessment. One of the biggest things that I can't, I can stress is when you land on scene, um, and, and I'm going to apply this to the flight side, you know, on the ground side or in the hospital, it's very, very easy to continually reassess your lung sounds and reassess your airway because you have kind of a, an area where it's, it's somewhat quiet, obviously in the ambulance, it can, can be a little noisy, but you know, you kind of learn to overcome the, the road noise and stuff like that. But as far as a flight nurse or flight paramedic, when you land on scene, you may only have a few minutes because remember, we're always trying to get off scene as quickly as possible. We're, we're there to provide rapid transport in addition to critical care, um, you know, treatment and, and, and care. So your initial assessment, your, your assessment of lung sounds, your assessment of the mechanics of breathing, are they moving air? Are they moving um, enough air to cause a good functional residual capacity? So uh, filling those lungs to an appropriate amount to move 
enough minute ventilation. Um, so you can do those things very, very rapidly. But lung sounds, lung sounds are very, very important. And you should always listen to lung sounds. And I, you know, when I teach, I always say, you know, every single patient I come into contact with, I listen to lung sounds. And that was something I was taught way back when I first became a paramedic, when I was going through my internship. My preceptor, uh, Todd Clayton, was very, very anal about that, and he uh, made me listen to lung sounds on every patient we came in contact with. I don't care if it was a stubbed toe, I was to listen to lung sounds, and it really formed good habits, and you can learn a lot of information from listening to lung sounds. So is the patient striderous? Well, we said, yes, the patient does sound striderous. That is an ominous thing. Well, that's not something you want to hear. That means that there's some type of laryngeal edema happening or some type of swelling in the throat. Um, she's conscious, but is she speaking any sentences? And, and we'll say she's speaking maybe one to two word sentences. She's very anxious. She's very tachypnic. So as far as the tachypnea goes, you know, she's got the mechanism. She's got a T-bone accident. And we got to remember that a T-bone accident like that causes massive damage to the affected side. We have our, all of our long bones, our femur, we got our tip fib, our pelvis. Um, then we have on the passenger side, if she's sitting on the passenger side, we have our liver, um, we have our lung um, on that side and we have all those ribs. So does she have a flail chest? Um, just having the flail chest alone means that her mechanics of breathing are going to be very, very, uh, limited. Uh, she's going to be very tachypnic and very shallow. And so her air movement is not going to be, uh, worth a crap basically. Um, I can tell you that from my own experience, having a flail chest um, about 17 years ago uh, from a four-wheeler accident, that it was a horrible, horrible thing. And, and the only thing I needed was pain medicine. And I needed that because it allowed me to kind of slow my breathing down, allowed me to take uh, a larger breast. But you know, no matter how much morphine uh, they gave me, um, back then we didn't carry fentanyl. Um, it, it just didn't touch it. You know, it helped a little bit, but I can tell you that you need to be very liberal with your pain management and probably fentanyl is the best option in that case, um, just to allow them to be able to move some air. So let's continue with our case. So, you know, you continue and you assess your patient's lung sounds. You note that she has diminished lung sounds on the right-hand side. Um, you immediately decide to do a chest decompression because we have to remember that a um, diminished lung sounds on the right-hand side or the left-hand side, and you have the mechanism, you have somebody that's striderous, she's very anxious, you know, it's not the time at that point to say, well, you know what, we don't know if this is a tension, um, we don't know, you know, that is the time, just simply decompress that chest, um, you know, Obviously, we don't decompress a simple pneumo, but we do decompress a patient that's decompensating, and that is a life threat. And so that is the first part of managing this patient's airway. It's not dealing with the intubation aspect. It's not doing those things. It's fixing a life threat, and that life threat at that point is a potential tension pneumo from that affected right side that was hit by that van. So you do the chest decompression um, and you assess the airway. So let's talk about that. You know, the whole big thing about um, RSI is looking at clinical course and looking at really risk versus reward. Um, which road are you going to take? Does this patient have an airway that you're um, not going to be able to manage in 10 minutes? And that's the decision you make to RSI. Or does this patient have a good airway, but maybe they're hemorrhaging out, they're losing their O2 carrying capacity. Remember, hemoglobin is the biggest 
player in carrying oxygen. We carry 98% of all of our oxygen on our hemoglobin. And if you're dumping all that out, you're losing that ability to carry oxygen. So that's called hypemic hypoxia. So are you innovating this patient because you're foreseeing this patient is going to hemorrhage out and they need all the help they can get. Um, so again, be proactive and not reactive. Um, don't wait and wait and wait and let the patient decompensate and then decide to manage that airway. Obviously in this patient, we have some major life threats. We have a striderous patient. So let's talk about that aspect. Why is she striderous? Why is she so swollen? Well, again, one of the things I always stress is when you walk in on a patient, whether you're in a hospital, an ambulance, or in a helicopter situation, your initial interpretation of that patient, that initial gut feeling you get is everything. And we have to remember that your gut feeling will never lead you down the wrong road. So if you walk in on a patient and then your immediate assessment, just based on visual cues, your auditory cues, is that this patient needs to be innovated, man, that is a key indicator that you're internal self is saying based on your experience that this patient needs to be innovated it's not time to second guess yourself at that point so always follow your gut feeling again also when we think about a crash airway and it's important to kind of talk about crash airway crash airway um, based on kind of the the algorithms are um, multifaceted they kind of fall under two categories the first one is classically can you oxygenate or ventilate this patient um, that's a big, big thing. You know, if you have a patient that's had a gunshot to the face but via a shotgun, can you oxygenate and ventilate them appropriately? And the answer is usually no. So at that point, you can either decide to skip intubation and go straight to a surgical airway, which is absolutely appropriate, or you can attempt intubation via maybe a tomahawk, um, you know, a patient sitting up if they are sitting up, or you can, you know, do it the normal way but again you're going to probably have a copious amounts of blood to deal with if you lay them down flat so those are things to kind of consider the same thing with a surgical airway is when you walk in and you see a patient that is that severely injured that should pop in your head you know is this patient going to be um, an easy intubation or is this patient going to be almost an impossible intubation and and again you want to set yourself up for success first pass success is always the goal so you know surgical airways are something that we have to think about we have to always keep that in the back of our mind that has to be one of our plans um, in the whole scope of our RSI or airway management um, my buddy um, back in Oregon um, Jeff Beer um, he is a, a regional faculty for the difficult airway course the same thing with Dave Olvera, another buddy of mine. And they both preach, have that part of your plan. It doesn't mean that you're going to you know, perform a surgical airway on every patient. You may only do uh, one in your whole career, if that. But you need to have that training in the back of your mind. You need to practice those things because when it does happen, you need to be ready to perform that procedure. And I think that's the biggest part of um, anxiety that crews have with a surgical airway is they're afraid to cut the neck. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to be afraid of that. I mean, I think you, you, you should be um, somewhat afraid of that, but I, I, I caution using that word. I think you should respect the procedure. And if you respect surgical airways, if you respect RSI, you're going to constantly train on that procedure and you're going to become more comfortable. You may not feel comfortable doing the procedure, but you need to 
have that kind of rote memory ingrained in your um, in your brain that you've done this many many times in training, and when it really does happen, um, you can just perform and react. The other part of the crash airway algorithm is basically, you know, do you have a patient that's decompensating? Are they decompensating to the point where, you know what, we don't have time to perform a complete RSI with pain management with an induction agent um, and, and do all those things? You may just need to skip those things because this patient's decompensating and you just give succinylcholine or rocuronium and then you perform your intubation and then you give them their pain management and their sedation afterwards. So that's kind of another caveat to the crash airway algorithm. So based on this patient, you note that during your assessment that she is extremely swollen. She's got sub-Q air basically from her eyes all the way down into her groin area. Um, they had cut her clothes off. They've got a, a blanket over her and you note that she probably based on her height um, and just looking at her she probably normally weighs about 120 pounds and, and like I said when you look at her visually she's looking like she's over 300 pounds so what is the cause of that well that is a classic bronchial tear um, she's got some type of bronchial tear she's got massive sub, sub air that's engulfing her whole uh, whole body so based on this flight cruise assessment and, and what I was told, um, this patient had no landmarks available. Basically, her neck, um, her face, all the way down to her clavicles, her chest, you couldn't identify really any uh, trachea, you couldn't identify really any chin um, or anything like that. So that really makes airway assessment very, very difficult. So how do we assess an airway? Well, it's really, really important to assess an airway in a way that is um, gonna give you an indication of how difficult this airway is. Obviously, she's got significant swelling, edema, um, that's gonna cause some, some difficulties, but we also have other ways. So if this patient was sitting up, she was conscious, she was alert, we can always do a malampati classification. That's something that where you basically open their mouth, have them open their mouth, stick out their tongue at you, and you're looking in the back of their throat, you're looking at how much you can see can you see the uvula and if you can see all those things unobstructed then that's a class one malampati and then you basically go all the way to a class four um, based on how well you can see everything in the back of the throat with a class four being an innovation that may be more difficult so the malampati has to have two aspects you have to have a conscious patient and that patient's got to be sitting up and able to open their mouth to perform that assessment the other assessment we do is called the 332 rule, and um, it's kind of hard to demonstrate that, but basically when you look at the 332 rule, what you're doing is you're looking at three of the patient's fingers in their mouth, three of the patient's fingers from the uh, underneath the chin to the back of the, the neck or the throat, and then two from um, the, the bend of the neck down to the hyoid. And if you can do that, then that means that you have potentially an easier intubation. They're not too anterior. Um, you can open their mouth. They don't have any rigidity or any uh, mobility issues with their mouth, their neck, their jaw, and things like that. So that's another um, way to do an airway assessment. So based on your airway assessment with this patient, obviously she's striderous, she's very tachypnic, and you have to make a decision right now because this patient is very, very gravely injured. And so that decision is, do you go to a surgical airway or do you try to innovate this patient? And again, it should be based on your gut instinct. 
So in this patient, what types of medications are you going to give? Well, obviously, we want to always try to monitor our patient with the proper monitoring tools. And historically, we've always used our SAO2. Remember, that's going to give you an indication of um, O2 saturation to hemoglobin. But as you have gone through your critical care training, if, or if you've listened to my podcast in the past or taken our review courses, you know that your, your O2 set is only as good as the affinity for oxygen. And I say that because we did a podcast a while back and you can look at it. It's called the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. So again, in this situation, being in a trauma situation, I would look at her O2SAT and I would probably use it as a guide because she hasn't had long enough time for that affinity for O2 based on her hemoglobin saturation to change much. What else can we use? Well, we can use entitled CO2 quantitative capnography, and we can use a nasal cannula if you're able to even put it on this patient. So again, I'm just kind of going through different procedures, and that's going to tell you a lot of things. The biggest thing for this patient is going to tell you perfusion status, because remember, your entitled CO2 capnography is the quickest and easiest way to identify perfusion and ongoing perfusion. So let's talk about making the decision to innovate this patient. Um, the flight crew in this situation made the early assumption that this probably is going to lead to a surgical airway, but they wanted to try one attempt via innovation, which I have no problems with. Obviously, we always want to do that if we can. So what, how are we going to passively oxygenate? Remember, we passively oxygenate in two ways. We do it via nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute. And then we put on a separate oxygen source, um, non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute. I know there's programs out there that teach to put a BVM and just place the BVM mask over the face. My big issue with that is I think it's an automatic thing. We, we've always been taught to bag our patients and we've learned through literature that that is a bad thing. We don't want to bag our patients if we don't have to. We don't want to fill their stomach up with air. And I think that's just kind of one of those recipes where somebody's going to start bagging. I mean, you, you just can't help yourself. So I kind of have my BVM sitting next to me ready if I need it, but I will put a non-rebreather on the patient. And just based on Graham's law, the simple law of diffusion, going from a higher concentration to a lower concentration, you're going to have good oxygenation. From there, what do we do as far as our pre-medications or our, our you know, pre-treatment medications? Well, we have a few. And the first thing I want to say is the big one in RSI is fentanyl. And, you know, for years we've used lidocaine and lidocaine was thought to blunt ICP um, related to the innovation process. And what we've learned is, is that that was hogwash. Lidocaine didn't do that. Um, but the medication that does do that very, very well is fentanyl. When you look at ICP increases, when you look at um, anything associated with innovation, it's all about the pain. It's a very painful, painful procedure. And I've talked about this in other podcasts, that there's multiple studies out there that have shown comparisons with severely injured patients in burns, um, having their chest cracked in open heart surgery and things like that. And innovation in of itself, just that laryngeal stimulation um, was more painful based on EEG tracings. So we have to blunt that sympathetic response. That sympathetic response is what's going to spike that ICP up. 
So fentanyl is a great medication to do that. Remember, fentanyl is very, very good as far as keeping the blood pressure at a normal range. Um, it's not going to have a huge catecholamine release. So, you know, smaller doses. And for pre-induction RSI, um, you know, in the past, we went up to three mics per kilo. Um, and I, even doing that, as long as I did, we, I never saw a blood pressure drop based on that large dose. But now I think most companies have gotten more conservative and your induction um, dose prior to RSI is most often about one mic per kilo. So based on her, you know, you're going to give your one mic per kilo dose. And then we get to our induction agent. And our induction agent historically has always been Atomidate. Or if you go way back, when I first started RSI, and we used Versed for this. You know, we gave five or Versed, and then we would, you know, give our paralytic but now we have a multitude of medications. We could still give Versed if we wanted to. We can give Atomidate, but now we have ketamine. And ketamine is my drug of choice. And this is a perfect drug for this situation. Remember, we've done two different podcasts on ketamine. So if you want to brush up on ketamine, jump to those podcasts. I'm not going to get into the whole pathophysiology of ketamine. Just know, though, that it's very, very good with hemodynamics, very good for cerebral perfusion um, and things like that. It's called it's cerebral protective. So we can give that medication in this patient. It's going to have bronchial two effects. You're going to open up those bronchioles, maybe help a little bit, um, and you're going to have a bump in heart rate, a bump in blood pressure in a patient that's decompensating. So ketamine would be my go-to medication in this situation. And really, um, there's very few patients that I would go accommodate. And I think the only one I would go with was with a patient that has a hypertensive type situation, secondary to a head bleed, um, where they really can't afford to have a blood pressure increase anymore or heart, heart rate increase anymore. At that point, I would go automate um, because they may need that drop. Uh, ketamine is going to actually increase that blood pressure and potentially increase that heart rate. So for her, I would give ketamine and your induction dose for ketamine is, is usually one to two milligrams per kilogram. So, you know, go two milligrams per kilogram on her. Um, remember ideal body weight will say she's about 70 kilos. So, um, you know, go 140 milligrams of ketamine. And then at this point, we need to pick our paralytic. And our paralytic needs to be based on not just what we've always done, but based on the science and the literature. And historically, we've always used succinylcholine, and we know succinylcholine has a multitude of potential contraindications or relative side effects. Um, you know, it's one of the biggest um, causes of anaphylactic reaction. Actually, in the hospital setting, it happens all the time in the, in the OR setting, and anesthesiologists have to deal with that is malignant hyperthermia. And malignant hyperthermia, we know, is caused from a huge influx um, of calcium in all the muscles based on the fasciculations, causes muscle firing systemically, and causes huge increase in temperature. Um, so that's one obvious side effect. I have to say that in, you know, the 17, 18 years I've RSI, I've never had that or seen that happen, but I do come across providers that have seen that happen in the field. Um, and that's something that would be pretty horrible to see because we're not going to be able to convert or change that and give an antidote. The antidote is dantrolene and, and we don't carry that, um, on most, um, helicopters. I mean, I've, I've come across a few hospital based organizations that carry it, but, but I would say that that's a very, very small percentage. 
So we have succinylcholine, and then we have rocuronium. And historically, we've always used sucks, like I said. But about six years ago, if you remember, there was a big shortage in uh, rocuronium. Or I should say there was a big shortage in succinylcholine. And we had to use rocuronium for induction paralytic. And when we started doing that, I saw how easy it was to use. There really wasn't any um, related side effects that I saw. You know, obviously the whole sensitivity to the medication. Um, you're really probably not going to know that in, in the pre-hospital setting. But I, we used that and I had great success with it. And then I started thinking about, you know, if we had sucks, we had rock, we had VEC all lined up and we had them all taped, would we perform an airway procedure like RSI any differently? And then really the answer is no. If you gave me Vecuronium and I had to use that for my paralytic for my induction paralytic i'm not going to change anything i do i'm going to go through all the different airway assessments i'm going to pick the correct tube i'm going to attempt my first attempt um, if i miss my first attempt i'm going to change something and i'm going to go all the way down my decision making paradigm um, to where finally if i can't get the innovation i'm going to place a backup airway a king airway and i'm going to do that whether i'm in a uh, using succinylcholine or I'm using vecuronium. So based on the literature and the studies, when we did a, a podcast on passive oxygenation, and you can go back and look at that literature and read that if you haven't already, but using succinylcholine versus rock, the patients that were given succinylcholine in this study, they desaturated two minutes quicker than rocuronium. Well, that to me is significant. That's a long time. And you got to think about the whole fasciculation aspect of how quickly we utilize oxygen. When your muscles are firing rapidly like that, you're going to burn through all those oxygen stores that we have, or I should say limit those oxygen stores. We're not going to probably burn through all of them, but we're not going to see that in rocky rhodium. So it's going to buy you a little bit of time. So for her, I would give rocuronium. Again, if you have the choice between atominate and, and um, ketamine in your kind of toolkit, in your protocols, I would go ketamine. Again, think about the, what's going on, and, and there may be a few instances where ketamine may not be the best choice, but I think 99% of the time it's going to be the better choice. The same thing with succinylcholine and rocuronum. If you have the choice between the two, if you can pick your paralytic, then I would go rock um, every single time. I'm going to, I'm going to go rocuronium. So based on that, this flight crew did one attempt. Um, they thought, you know what, we're going to try one attempt. Uh, went in immediately and um, had massive laryngeal edema, had no landmarks, couldn't see anything. And so at that point, they made a decision that they had to do a surgical airway. So again, this is something that is all about training. It's all about making that decision to do it. You know, they were put in a situation where they, they immediately recognized that this was potentially the need. They still wanted to try one intubation attempt. The patient was compensating enough where I think it was warranted. Um, so at this point, what do you do? As I stated, they really couldn't identify any landmarks. They couldn't identify the chin. They couldn't definitely identify the sternal notch. They couldn't identify the uh, thyroid or cricoid membrane. So, you know, this is one of those, those airways that nobody wants. Um, I think the crew did really, really good. I would say outstanding in this situation. They stayed very, very calm. Um, they performed a cut, basically was able to 
somewhat identify the chin area um, and they basically did a one and a half to two inch cut uh, vertically. Remember when we do a surgical airway like this, you never want to do a horizontal incision. You only want to do a vertical incision. And again, based on what your training is, I know we teach um, to do a larger incision. You want to make sure that you can see and visualize those um, landmarks easily. You want to get in and place that airway as quickly as possible. So based on their protocol, they were putting in a shyly or that was what was needed based on the protocol. And as they cut down, I believe the flight crew told me that they had to cut down about four to five inches deep. That's how much edema had, had, had formed in the neck and the surrounding tissues. So once they got down to the cricoid membrane, they realized that the shyly was not going to work. So they made an immediate decision to go with a ET tube and they placed a six point five ET tube um, successfully inflated the cuff and got good air movement placed in tidal CO2 capnography and got good waveform um, and a good number. So I think that they did an outstanding job. They stayed calm. They worked together as a team. Um, they, they overcame a very difficult patient, a very uh, traumatic injury to, you know, the airway, the bronchial tear. Um, at that point, they load the patient into the helicopter and, you know, obviously you have all those potential internal injuries. And we talked about the, the femur, we talked about the pelvis and the liver and the chest, and she's already had a tension pneumo treated once. So they load in the helicopter, the place, the patient on the ventilator. And remember, you've already had a tension pneumo once. The first thing you always do when you place the patient on the ventilator is a plateau pressure. Remember your plateau pressure needs to be maintained below 30. Um, we want to maintain that and monitor that. And so she's already had one tension pneumo treated with a chest decompression. And I'm going to look at that and I'm going to continually monitor that as often as I can to make sure that we don't have any trending um, numbers upward. If you see that number go up above 30 again, that's an immediate chest decompression. You don't wait. You immediately do that. So the flight time to the trauma center, I believe, was pretty short. It was about five or ten minutes. Um, and as they were unloading the patient uh, into um, out of the helicopter, um, they note a change in entitled CO2. Um, they check for a pulse. Uh, entitled CO2 was, was about 28 throughout the flight, and it dropped into the teens at about 16. They noticed that they lose pulses, and they started immediate chest compressions as they wheeled the patient into the trauma room. Um, the trauma team attempted resuscitation uh, for about 30 minutes. I believe the uh, crew told me that the edema associated with this patient was so much that the trauma surgeon attempting to place a chest tube was in her chest um, axillary at the landmark um, about 8 to 12 inches. That's how much edema there was just to get to the ribs uh, to perform a chest tube. Uh, they also said that just attempting to do an ultrasound for the FAST exam was unsuccessful because of the edema that just wouldn't read through all of the, the tissue swelling and edematous uh, areas around the chest and abdomen. Unfortunately, this patient did succumb to the injuries. Um, it was a catastrophic um, you know, systemic multi-systems trauma patient that, that died uh, right there in the trauma room. But... 
again, based on their assessment, based on their quick action airway wise, they were able to establish an airway on a very difficult patient. And I really think in my career, I've never heard of or seen an airway that bad. So I want to applaud them that they, they did a phenomenal job dealing with a very tough situation, um, probably a very stressful situation. The last thing as far as your airway management and RSI is post-innovation management. And we have to remember that times have changed. And if you're still giving long-acting paralytics, if you're still giving your rock or your VEC post-innovation, um, I got to say that you're, you're really missing the boat. There are countless studies that have shown that we do a very poor job in maintaining pain management and sedation when performing um, RSI and giving a long-acting paralytic. And so you should really, really try to stay away from that. Um, about three and a half, four years ago, I really challenged myself to change that culture in me as well, because that was kind of the culture, how I was brought up. You always just give a, gave a long acting paralytic. And based on the, the, the research, the studies, the teachings that I had seen, I changed that. And so the way I kind of do that now, and it's almost been four years since I've given a long acting paralytic to a patient because I'm very aggressive. Um, I'm very liberal with my fentanyl administration. Remember, fentanyl is a very short-acting narcotic. Um, it wears off every five minutes. So you need to be redosing these patients every five minutes, every seven minutes to keep them in that therapeutic threshold. Um, I give, you know, one mic per kilo. I don't give huge doses. So 50 to 150 mics just based on how big the patient is. And then I give a small dose of Versed every second dose of fentanyl. So basically, at the five-minute mark, I give fentanyl. At the 10-minute mark, I'll give another dose of fentanyl, and I'll give it two-and-a-half-milligram dose of Versed. I never go over two-and-a-half-milligrams of Versed. I try to keep it right in that range because I think it's more important to treat the pain than it is the sedation. And if you continually give fentanyl um, in the proper amounts, often very liberally like that, you're going to maintain a level of sedation. Uh, fentanyl does have sedative effects when you get start getting to those larger um, kind of threshold levels of between three to five mics per kilogram. So if you continually do that, um, then your patient stays very, very comfortable. The other thing is that I think it's very important to allow them to over-breathe the ventilator a little bit. And if you have read my ventilator management book, um, you know, I kind of talk about that in, and I think about, you know, what's going on metabolically? Are they in a metabolic acidosis? And these patients need to be able to compensate and breathe and protect those P, that pH. So, you know, I don't allow my patients to overbreathe significantly. You know, maybe four to six breaths per minute is all, but I don't ever want to completely blunt them and block them. Um, I maintain a level of pain and sedation that allows them to still trigger the ventilator a little bit, but not overbreathe. And I definitely don't paralyze these patients. So that's kind of wraps up RSI. You know, again, RSI is all about decision-making. That's the first thing. It's all about making good decisions, being proactive, not reactive, and thinking, you know, five steps ahead. Work as a team. You have a provider. You have probably a nurse and a paramedic working together. You know, for you medics out there, um, I always give my nurse partners when I'm flying. And for those of you listening, you know I'm, I'm telling the truth. I always give them the opportunity when we go on shift. I will say, hey, do you want to do all the airways today? Because they need that experience. You as medics, you need you may need experience in the hospital realms, in the ICU settings, with the drips, with the pumps, with those things. 
And so you need to switch roles. Just because you're a medic doesn't mean you take all the airways. Doesn't mean you always sit in the airway seat. It means that you want to be multifaceted. You want to be good at all aspects of critical care. And you're never going to do that. Your partner as a nurse is never going to do that unless you switch roles and you mentor each other in those ways. And that's how you become a good, good flight crew and a good team. So that's kind of the role that I take. I try to take that mental role, that teaching role, always give them the first attempt. You know, I'm there with them during the attempt. I'm sitting right next to them, standing right next to them, kind of coaching them through. And, you know, so far have had all the nurses that I've, I've allowed to do this, or I shouldn't say allowed to do this, but kind of switched roles. Um, they've always been successful the first attempt. So, you know, it goes a long way building their confidence in that area, an area that they normally don't do often. So I want to thank everybody again for, uh, you know, just the continue listening. We're up to like 330% over last year. I just looked and we're, we're hitting 34,000 downloads, um, you know, per, per quarter now. And so that's, that's pretty huge. Um, Thank you for making ventilator management a pre-hospital perspective, the number one bestseller in transport medicine on Amazon. That's uh, pretty, pretty cool. And just thank you for allowing me to to invest in you and and put out these great podcasts. Just keep the emails coming. Uh, Send me your ideas. Send me topics. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at a future review course. Make sure you check out our page. We have review courses scheduled now all the way into next year. And uh, if I don't meet you uh, at a conference or, or, uh, you know, just reach out to me and uh, I'll always respond to my emails uh, very, very quickly. So thanks again and I'll talk to you soon. This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast. Leading the way in pre-hospital critical care and emergency medicine education.